Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today, mother and daughter, Alice Randall and Caroline Randall Williams, take us into the kitchens of five women in their family to tell the true story of African-American cooking. I used to bring baked chicken or baked fish to lunch most days at school with some kind of vegetable, which is something I learned from my great-grandmother, who was a black woman born on the plantation where her family had worked for generations in Waycross, Georgia. And my student said to me one day, Miss Williams, you eat like a white girl. And I said, no, I eat like an old black lady. Uh, and the fact that that exchange happened was like very illuminating for me, for mom, for a lot of us. Also on the show, Dan Pashman looks for the perfect cold weather cocktail, and we make lemon pesto from the Amalfi Coast. But first, it's my interview with Beth George. She runs BYOB Bagels, a bagel consulting company that's helped open over 80 bagel shops around the world, from Sweden to Uganda to the Bahamas. Beth, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've had a lot of people on this show, but I've never had an international bagel consultant before. (laughs) Uh, Does that sound better than it is, or is it better than it sounds? It's really pretty awesome, um, because it's not something that anyone had heard of, and I hadn't heard of, until I started doing it. So I guess we should just start with a food fight, which is, is there a definition of the perfect bagel. I, I have one, you may have one, but I'm not sure everyone agrees on this. Like some people make soft bagels, uh, which just, mm. I mean, that's that's not a bagel, right? Right, well, okay. So uh, it, this is, a, it's not a fight yet. I think that's fair. <laughs> you know, I really feel that a bagel should be crispy on the outside or crunchy, kind of depending on where you want to be. It has to be chewy on the inside. And I think it needs some flavor. It can't just be blanched out. And that means flavor from within the dough. Like the soul of the dough needs flavor. So, you know, I have a process. I have different formulas I've created over a period of years. And so the different processes can really create that either soft bagel or the crispy, crunchy bagel. And in our typical training, we make it, every single way. And then I let them choose, right? This is BYOB, be your own boss. We're really about self-determination because, you know, I started off not being a bagel maker. I started off being a lawyer lawyer and a mom. So is there some continuity of career between being a lawyer, a mom, and a bagel maker? Do they share anything? Yeah. I, yeah, I think they share passion, right? Um, And purpose. You know, I started bagel making because my son, who's now 23, just had, you know, significant food sensitivities. He couldn't digest regular wheat, actually, so I created a spelt bagel for him. When he was like six, five, six years old, he had a lot of behavioral and health problems. And now, you know, I figured it out over time, it was his gut. What he was eating was impacting his brain. Could you explain that a little more? What, what mm-hmm. did you find out about that connection? Uh, there's a big connection, and, I, and you can read about it. I mean, there's plenty of studies on it now. But um, if one is unable to digest the food that's in their stomach, uh, this phenomenon occurs called leaky gut. It, it interferes with the neurological connections to the brain. And the reason why I got so into this is I was at the time a child advocate attorney. So I had been witnessing so many kids in trouble 
being diagnosed and then drugged. Hmm. And I said, we're missing a link here. And so when that issue hit home for me, I just put the hold on everything. And I started studying. And I started seeing patterns. And what it was, it was what he was eating, you know? Right. So I just started going into my cabinet and literally threw away everything we had and started over again. Hmm. And literally he went from special education to the highly gifted program in school. Hmm. I'm Middle Eastern, I'm Lebanese American. My husband's Jewish, Eastern European Jewish. So this kid has both, you know, <laughs> culinary histories in his life, you know? And so I asked him what he wanted and he's like, I want a bagel. So I said, okay, I'm going to make you the best bagel I can. So this experience, which is really a pretty amazing transformation, and the fact that you figured it out on your own, which is also pretty cool, does that uh, give you a sense, you know, of mission in life that is don't accept what people tell you and just go out and figure it out on your own? Absolutely. Because that's what you're you're sort of done with the bagel business. Yeah, absolutely. And it is mission-based. And, you know, and I can talk people's ears off and they're like, oh God, the bagel lady again. (laughs) She's talking to us. All we wanted to know was how to make like a cinnamon raisin (laughs) bagel and we got a full dissertation. So you were a lawyer. Uh, How did you, did you have to make this shift all of a sudden or was it a gradual thing over the years? No, it it was gradual. So, in 2008, I opened a bagel factory in Maine. And then by 2011, I decided it was really too much for me. And my bagel sales guy, his name is Frank Morrow. He's 82 years old, but he'd been in the bagel business forever. And he just said to me, you know, you know what you're doing. And people need a bagel consultant. You know, they're, they're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars into this business, and they don't know how to make a good bagel. Hmm. And that's how that happened. It was really Frank saying, the world needs a bagel consultant, <laughs> and I think you're the one. <laughs> so you've consulted around the world. People want to make bagels in Uganda, in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. the Bahamas, Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the more interesting variations on the theme you find in different places in the world, or are they all pretty much the same? Well, you know, I think what we top our bagels with is where the variations are going to happen. But the other is like this young woman, Spurthy in India, who I'm working with, she's like, we need more spice. <laughs> we just need more spice in this. So, you know, in the Bahamas, malt is very big. So we we really just added a lot of malt to those bagels and people love them. In France, we did an Amental, if I'm pronouncing that mm-hmm. correctly, bagel. It was delicious. Well, there was a quote that uh, in Paris, they didn't understand why they had to pay the same price for bagels as compared to their sandwiches because there was a hole in the middle. I just think, right, that's right. That so was French. my client. That was really great to be able to go to Paris and teach bagel making. I, I felt like I had really made it Arrived. once I did that. Yes. So... Is this pretty pro forma where you have the manual of 500 pages and you show up and start at page one? Or is every situation of of training really different? So we start with the basics with everybody. Typically, before the shop's built, people come to me, to my training bakery, and I teach them there. And then if they feel that they really need me to show up, then I go visit them and I work with them for three to four days. And then it's basically they're on their own, but I'm there as a coach. 
And I often get texts or, you know, sometimes the middle of the night worries. And do they share, these people share something? In other words, what type of person calls you up and says, I want to become a bagel master? Yeah. I mean, it's it's an aha moment. Something has happened in their lives. Mm-hmm. So for me, something happened in my life, right? My son. For other people, I'm working with somebody and she's been a full-time parent, you know, and she's exiting out of her parenting career after 30 years, basically. And she said, first, I want to do bagels and I want to be my own boss. Another one is a family I'm working in and they really felt it was this, you know, this almost religious moment where they decided that they wanted a legacy business to carry on. Mm. And so they brought in like the the sons and the son-in-laws and the daughters and the daughter-in-laws and the grandchildren, and they're all working on this project. Um, I have people coming in from so many different places, and it, I am, I, this is going to sound corny, but I'm really honored to be a part of that transition. Beth, uh... I thought we were just going to talk about bagels, but we talked about life. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Beth George. She's the bagel consultant behind BYOB Bagels. Okay, it's time for my co-host, Sarah Malt and I, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101. She also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. So, Chris, I I have a question for you before we take any calls. Do you have a favorite dish from your childhood that either your mother made or your grandmother or somebody else? Yes, I do, actually. Uh, The best thing from my childhood was uh, spoon bread. Oh. I love spoon bread. You know, it's almost a souffle, right, in a casserole dish, and it's absolutely delicious and just one of the great things. My mother was uh, grew up in Virginia, and so— it was, at that time, I guess, slightly Southern, so it's a Southern dish. Nice. Well, okay. I'd like that, too. Yeah, it's, it's I, don't, I don't know why people don't make it anymore, because it's not hard to make, and it's, uh, it is an exceptional side dish, so. All right, well, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Lynn calling from the San Francisco Peninsula. How can we help you? Well, I would love to chat with you about pie crust. I've had really good luck with a vodka pie crust recipe. I consistently yep. get a really flaky crust, and I yep. love that I can make a few at a time and hold them in the freezer. Yep. The only problem is that even with that added moisture provided by the vodka, the dough is a little tricky to work with as it tends to crumble. So I increase the recipe by half, and I roll it out thicker than it's called for, and that seems to help. But I recently came across the Milk Street Kitchen pie crust recipe that calls for cornstarch and sour cream, and it oh, looks yeah. like a dream dough. Um, but I have five questions about it. Are you still with me? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. I'm ready. Go ahead. But, but, but by, by the way, before you do that, one note. You know, vodka pie crust, uh, and the whole point was it's 45% alcohol in the vodka, and that alcohol dissipates during baking. So the reason it's a good crust is you can have a wetter crust to start with, right? And then during baking, a lot of that the alcohol is driven off, so you end up with a flaky crust. So when you said it was crumbly, I think you could add a little more vodka at the front end 
because it'll it'll dry out during baking. That's just a quick comment. Okay, that's a really good tip. Yeah. All right. I, that okay. is. Um, I'll hold that in my back pocket. Okay. So I'm, I'm ready for the pop um, quiz. Yeah. Okay, because I'm excited to try the new version here, the Milk Street Kitchen version. Yeah. Um, but the recipe says the dough holds in the fridge for 48 hours. Do you know if I can also shape it into discs and freeze it? Yes. Great. And I'm curious about the sugar. Does it do more than act as a sweetener, or can I omit it without disrupting the chemistry of the recipe just because I want to have one recipe for sweet and savory? Uh, Two teaspoons sugar is not going to make any difference. Uh, No, you can leave it out. Great. Okay, and then Greek yogurt is a staple in my house. Can I use it in place of the sour cream? Uh, You can. Sour cream is going to be a little wetter than Greek yogurt. Uh, you might want to up the liquid by just a tiny amount, but it should be close, yeah. Okay. Um, the recipe explains how to blind bake the crust, yet yeah. like last week I made a chicken pot pie and par baking was not called for. So will this crust also work in recipes that need an unbaked crust? Yeah, uh, I would say I would not choose this crust for pre-baking, uh, but I can give you three pieces of ice that will help. Uh, refrigerate it for 40 minutes and freeze it for 20 minutes before you pre-bake it. That's when it's shaped in the pie plate. So when you're pre-baking, you said refrigerate at 40 and then freeze for 20. Yeah, and then put it directly. Okay. It's in the pie plate shaped, obviously. It goes right in the oven. Two, uh, okay. use a ton of pie weights. Like fill it up to the top. It'll really help the edges from slumping, prevent them from slumping. And okay. the third trick is make sure you don't take out pie weights in the foil until the edges are set. A lot of people take off their foil and weights before the dough is fully set, so they take it out and then it slumps. So make sure it's dry and set before you do. Okay, and that's probably my problem with the vodka pie crust because I add 50% to the recipe, so then it makes sense, too, that it would take longer to cook. Yeah, it's just a function of, of, of setting it with the weights before you take the weights out. All right, then last are there general rules for when you would bake a crust, par-bake it, versus when you would use it just raw? Yes. Uh, usually you, you par-bake a crust when you have a custard filling or a liquid filling. Let's say apple pie, you don't need to do it, but a pumpkin pie, you would. Okay. I'm so excited to go make pie crust. Did Thank I pass? You. Did I do okay? Oh, that was off the chart. <laughs> Whew. I think we could do a whole show just on a pie crust. I mean, it's come up a lot. There's so much to talk about. We could have a master class on this because we haven't even yep. talked about rolling pins yet. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Well, I'll save that for another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Lynn, call yeah. us back, you yeah, know, we'll, with we'll some do more part questions. Two. Yeah. We'll keep going. Okay. Lynn, take care. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. Have a great day. Yeah. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 426 9843 or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is James. I'm calling from Milledgeville, Georgia. How can we help you? People told me, you know, everybody says you need a good cast iron pan. About 10 years ago, I went online and bought a uh, nice vintage pan mm-hmm. and uh, proceeded to abuse it badly. And now what I have appears to be flaking. I'm sure the pan's been cleaned at some point in time, but if you close your eyes and run your fingers over the bottom of the pan, right. you can feel like, you know, a painted wall. You can feel where the seasoning is flaking off. 
do either of y'all have an opinion on the, the atrocity of taking a cast iron pan down to its base iron and starting over? Chris has about 5,000 opinions. Yeah. Well, if you want to fix an old pan, the best way to do it is to put some lousy oil, some vegetable oil on the bottom of the pan, put a bunch of really coarse kosher salt in it, heat it up, use some sort of a grill brush to gently rub the bottom of the pan. And the hot oil and the coarse salt is going to hopefully get rid of anything that's on the bottom of the pan that wants to come off. If you can get it off with that grill brush, again, not too hard, that'll fix it. Clean it off. Don't put it in water. Don't add soap. Take paper towels when it's cooled. Clean it out. Heat it on top of the stove with a couple tablespoons of oil. When it starts to smoke, take it off the heat. Rub the oil into the pan. Do that a few times till it's cooled down. Repeat like 10 times, and then you should have built back the surface again. If you can't get a smooth surface with using the hot oil salt technique, you're going to have to dump the pan and fork out 40 bucks for a new one, I'm afraid. There's a method out there online, and it says if you want to take it down to the base metal and start over, which I know sounds like a sin, is to put it in the oven in self-cleaning mode. Ooh. And it's simply the temperature is so hot, it takes off everything. And you end up with a clean cast iron pan that you then immediately season in whatever way that you choose. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I have heard of that. I've never done it. I've never had the courage. <laughs> you can do it, and then you go. James, us. will you do it and let us know? <laughs> I do have a question, though. Is the bottom of the pan really, really, really smooth surface, or is it a rougher Except surface? Except for the flaking and a little bit of discoloration. I know this is a little bit OCD of me, but this is right. the only appreciating asset in my kitchen. <laughs> you know, it really is. You know, this is an antique, and there is no crustiness in the bottom. The pan is almost perfect. I like the fact you refer to it as the only appreciating asset in your kitchen. I always feel I'm a depreciating asset in my kitchen, but, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe the cast iron pan is the thing that's going up in value right. and going down. Well, I've been waiting for a while, but I just happened to have bought a new oven, so this is fixing to happen tomorrow. Okay. We're going to have to call you back in a couple of days to see if you're still appreciating or depreciating. <laughs> we'll have to figure that out. Okay. So, Thanks, James. Thanks for the call. Take care. That was great. Thank you. Yeah, All you, right, too. you too. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Margaret from Missouri. Oh, hi, Margaret from Missouri. <laughs> How can we uh, help you today? Well, I've taken on a new little hobby, and it's it's making my own vanilla. Now, I'm not a big baker or anything, but I just found it interesting. And I've been trying to read up, try to make sure I'm doing it right. And, of course, everybody's got their own opinion. So I just thought I'd come to you guys and see. What you think. Uh, the recipe I'm using is just um, one ounce of beans to uh, eight ounces of whatever kind of liquor. Uh, I use vodka on some, and some I have used rum. So, But then others are saying, oh, why don't I use one or two beans, not ounces, just one or two beans. So which is it? Do you use just one or two beans? are using an ounce every eight ounces of liquor. I usually go with the number of beans. Of course, you know, probably what you're doing is more exact. How many beans are in an ounce, do you find? Well, that's hard to say. The Tahitian beans that I order, I actually got five for an ounce. 
but then the Mexican ones I got were just like three. Well, I think then it's good to go with an ounce. I mean, what you're talking about sounds about like the proportions I would have thought, you know, like about four to six beans to eight ounces of your liquor. And your liquor, most if you want it to be more just pure vanilla, I think I would go with vodka because vodka is so flavorless. But if you want sort of a more robust or caramely flavor, you could go with, say, bourbon the good news about the vodka, you can use really cheap stuff because uh, nobody, you know, really, it's the, the point is the vanilla beans. So you might as well splurge on the vanilla beans and not on the vodka. And then you, you, you know, you smush it gently every day for a couple of weeks and then leave it for a couple of months. And, you know, I'd say after a couple of months, you could start dipping into it. But the longer you let it proof, so to speak, the more intense it will be. So have you gotten good results um, so far? Are you happy with them? Yes, the ones I started in December smells wonderful. Now, the ones in January that I used with rum, eh, it's still got a pretty potent smell. So I'm hoping in another month or two that the vanilla will be stronger. Well, it's never going to be as strong as it would have been had you used vodka. But let's let Chris weigh in on this. Yeah, I did this once. And I got to tell you, you know, if you buy a really good vanilla, and they're expensive, it's true. You could spend 30 bucks a bottle. But... I find it's going to be a lot better than what you do at home because they really know what they're doing. And, and, and a good bottle lasts a long time. It's fun to do, however. I just ask you a couple of questions. Were the beans really pliant and soft when you when they arrived? Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. Just, yeah, okay. they're beautiful. They're grade A. And okay. they were beautiful, yeah. Well, I, I agree with Sarah. You know, half a dozen beans split. You, do, you split them open, right, and, and scooped out the seeds and everything before you put them in the bottle? Um, I, I did. On one batch, I split the beans, but I didn't take out the caviar. I left it all in the bottle. The other one, I just stuck them in there hole without splitting them. Yeah, that's probably going to hurt. I mean, you, you, you definitely want to open them up. Okay. Uh, I, I, I And I take the seeds out and put it in the jar, too. But uh, the other thing you can do, and I have done this, and this actually is, I think, worth doing, is just making vanilla sugar, right? Mm. Because, you know, th- that's really expensive, and you can just make a bunch of it. And that's great for coffee or any baking, having vanilla sugar around. But you're doing everything right. Just make sure you split the beans open and they're good beans. But everything else, um, yeah, sounds good. Sounds correct to me. Well, I'm kind of disappointed if, if he thinks that uh, a nice, expensive store-bought vanilla might be better but anyway, it's been fun trying it. So <laughs> There are really good vanillas yeah. out there now as opposed to the supermarket ones. But you know what? You're doing this because yeah. it's fun. So it's like making yeah. vinegar. So so go ahead and do it. Good for you. <laughs> Margaret, thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank Take you. care. Take care, Margaret. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I'm chatting with mother and daughter, Alice Randall and Caroline Randall-Williams. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. 
you know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Alice Randall and Caroline Randall-Williams. They're mother and daughter, as well as co-authors of Soul Food Love, which presents recipes inspired by the culinary traditions of four generations of black women in their family. 
Alice and Caroline, welcome to Milk Street. Christopher, wonderful to be with you. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, I, I did read your book, Soul Food Love, and and the the writing was is terrific. And it's it's almost poetic. There's a certain poetry to it, which I really like. So could you just describe the basic construct of the book? Well, first, I want to say it's a great advantage when you're not a poet to be writing with a poet. <laughs> Caroline was a poet. I'm a novelist. So <laughs> that you picked up on some of the secret sauce of the book. There you go. But the the larger construct of the book is it's a tale of a hundred years of cooking and eating in one black family. And it's told from the perspective of Caroline's grandmother, two of her great grandmothers, her mother, and then Caroline. So five kitchens. That's right. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting quotes in here. And one of them was foodways in much of black America are plain broke down. Which seems to be obviously one of the themes of the book. What do you mean specifically by that? So one of the reasons that we wound up writing the book was at the time I was living in the Mississippi Delta, and I think I'd never really experienced in any meaningful, sustained way a food desert before. I was teaching at a school that was 98% black and uh, comparable figures to describe the number of students who are living at or below the poverty line. And, um, you know, these were kids who were raised with, in some ways, a sense of what soul food was, what Southern food was, what black food was. But then, you know, you look around at what food they had access to. And, you know, the nearest grocery store was not walking distance. There was irregular transportation, like they couldn't get to fresh food, they couldn't get to high quality food. And so then it becomes things like Popeye's and gas station fried chicken that join the narrative of what soul food is, which is, you know, in social ways and cultural ways, those are important additions. But in terms of actually knowing our history and where our food comes from and what it was made of, like that's so far from it. And the fact that my students didn't know that it was so far from where we started, that was the broke down part, I think. Uh, You know, I used to bring baked chicken or baked fish to lunch most days at school with some kind of vegetable, which is something I learned from my great-grandmother, who was a black woman born on the plantation where her family had worked for generations in Waycross, Georgia. And my student said to me one day, Miss Williams, you eat like a white girl. And I said, hmm. no, I eat like an old black lady. <laughs> uh, and, and the fact that that divide that that exchange happened was like very illuminating for me, for mom, for a lot of us. You also, I think, paint a picture of lots of different origin stories. Like if you were a family living on a farm, your diet was quite different than a family, let's say, living in town, in Selma or living or Chicago, wherever. So is there consistency across this history that binds it together or does it depend on the origin story? So to be black and in the South and in America, when you look at a tree, when you look at a field, you're not just seeing food, you're seeing stolen labor and you're seeing terror of lynching. And so that story is complicated. Even when you arrive in your upper middle class Harlem home, even when you establish your beautiful house that Grandma Bonta had, with her husband who was a professor and she had traveled to Yugoslavia and stayed at Tito's palace. 
but she still remembered the turpentine camps of Waycross, Georgia. You take those food memories with you, the good and the bad, and this history of domestic service that by 1900, that the large percentage of African-Americans working outside of their homes, and particularly women, were all working in domestic service. And a term that Caroline coined, kitchen rape. This is something that so many of these women were subject to in slavery and in freedom. It's not something that ended with emancipation. And so the kitchen has been a widely fraught space, period. But there has been kitchen triumph. The other national story is that Black women and men have continued to bring imagination, innovation, and cultural continuity to the kitchen despite these adversities. They create amazing, extraordinary recipes that were enjoyed in their own homes and by white people who had Black women and men working as their cooks. Uh, the first chapter, Minnie Randall, dear, um, it, it, something really interesting you wrote about, uh, you said her husband grew up in Selma where white women never cooked, so he ended up doing a lot of the cooking because he could not stand to see her doing it. Um, that, that was, uh, could you just talk about that? Because I, I, that, I guess, surprised me or I never thought of that before. That was one of the wonderful surprises of researching to discover that Deere never did any cooking and that it was a conscious effort on her husband who was actually you know, running a very successful business and wanting to give his life the privilege that he had seen right. white women have. And so he figured out a way to do the cooking. I knew myself that every morning when I stayed with him, he would make skillet cornbread and coffee, milk down coffee for me, and she would have her coffee in bed that he had served. But I hadn't thought about the fact that she basically presented a meal on Sundays that he had cooked or impressed uh, male family members or people working for the family male <laughs> into service. Yeah, I just love that story. Um, grandma cooked in Nashville occasionally for club women. She belonged to clubs. Could you just describe that culture and also the food that went along with it? To me, Grandma Bontan is the great triumph of the book. One of the things about the Black experience and all this time in domestic service, including in the period of enslavement, is that Black people developed an extraordinary grammar of cooking skills. And so what people haven't noticed is they, I like to say, they save the best for themselves. That no place that they want to use these skills to make ice creams and moles and kulubiak and all these things that they might have been doing in fancy homes and in restaurants, they saved the best for themselves for their own homes. And often when they were cooking these club women dinners, and Grandma Bontemps was an extraordinary example of being on both sides of the eating, cooking, cleaning equation and making the most magnificent meals in those settings. And that's something that has been little recorded until we put it in the cookbook. I think the only layer that I would want to add is to your question, you know, about illuminating the world of club women. It's not just saving the best for themselves, but also, you know, the other side of that coin is choosing to have a lovely thing and make your own way into a lovely space when the world is not making that kind of loveliness available to you. Uh, you know, these clubs formed out of 
you know, in some ways a a practical need might be the wrong word, but what do you do when you want to go out to dinner with your friends and no restaurant will open its doors to you because of the color of your skin? You find a way and make a way to have a lovely elevated experience with your friends for yourself if the world won't give it to you. Yeah, I was struck by the recipes being, I don't know, for want of a better adjective, celebration food. I mean, you know, aspics, salmon molds, checkerboard sandwiches, layer cakes. I mean, the food was sort of larger than life, I think. It really was. I mean, even Grandma Bontemps, here's a woman whose husband, you know, they grew up at married life in the Great Depression. He is a librarian and uh, academic at historically black colleges, not making much money. She had 36 place settings of silver Hmm. that she hid in the bookshelves of his library behind his books Hmm. and would set up these card tables for her friends. She could sit 36 down to dinner. And one of the things that Caroline has inherited is 18 place settings of real burgundy silver that have been up in Harlem and have been in Tuskegee before that. This is silver that Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell have Hmm. eaten with these forks and these knives. That's how important laying the beautiful table for our community was, for our community, when we could do that. Uh, Nana, you write that she was really the kitchen and the bar, I guess, to the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And no one was paying for the meals. Uh, Everyone sat at that table for free. Could you just talk about that? Because I thought that was so interesting. You know, I sit in front of my Nana's cookbooks every day when I go to work. Um, My office is in my kitchen because to me that is where the work of my life happens. I am a writer and I am a home cook and I write about cooking and I cook thinking about literature. It all intersects and that is in no small part because of my grandmother, Joan Bonton. She worked as a librarian and brought home money that allowed her to lay these tables. You know, she chose a life with a man who fought for civil rights with every bone and breath of his body. And she was proud to be able to have a job that allowed her to welcome the people that he was working to protect and support and to take a worry off of people that were coming into her home and to allow them to sink into a moment of celebration or respite. And that to me is, I think, the charge that I feel like I've inherited. I always want my home to be a place that people can come and expect to be taken care of, and they can expect to find food that's delicious and a bar that's open, and that there's nothing I'm asking for that except for that they experience some joy from it. Uh, And I love that she paid for the food with the taking care of books. And then that resulted in this insane 2000 book cookbook library that I now have, where she sort of brought the two loves together. (laughs) You you mentioned, uh, I didn't know this. You mentioned the term Diddy Wadiddy, which I know from a song, but uh, what is Diddy Wadiddy? Well, Diddy Wadiddy is sort of heaven on earth in black folk culture. Zora Neale Hurston is one of the people who captured this. It's one of the elemental African-American folk tales. And when people dream of heaven, it often reflects what's missing in their world, in the 
desert heaven often has water. It's interesting when this heaven on earth, Diddy Wa Diddy, this mythic place was invented, the chickens ran around with forks and knives in their backs, <laughs> that it was an abundant food world. You know, it, it reminds me of the song Big Rock Candy Mountain, at least the original lyrics to it. You paddle around the lake made of stew and whiskey, too. <laughs> you know, and all the all the hens laid hard-boiled eggs. It, it sounds like the two are related at some point. Maybe. Completely. And it's all related to why I mentioned heaven is Land of Milk and Honey. Right. I love that song, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, in the Black experience, we have the welcome table. And one of my favorite hymns is that welcome table and it's all about being up in heaven and I'm going to tell Jesus how you did me. It's about this great conversation and food at a table but that idea of milk and honey and conversation it's an ideal that we're all trying to achieve in secular circumstances now. Alice, you, you studied with Julia Child in the 70s. Um, I didn't know that. Could you just talk about that? That was one of my greatest life experiences. Uh, the opposite of Caroline, I grew up in a house with only three cookbooks. Only one that I got from the family, which was a joy of cooking. And somehow or another from a library, I got a uh, Craig Claiborne menu cookbook. Mm -hmm. And actually from a friend's mother, I got Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And as a little girl from about fifth grade up, I cooked my way through those cookbooks. I first met Julia Child also in Detroit on the television. I was, my parents were very busy people. I was often left in front of the television and I found my way to Julia Child. So when I arrived at Harvard, I knew that she lived in Cambridge. And I think my sophomore year, back in those days when you had telephone books, I cold called Julia Child. And I said, I had loved all of her books and cooked through one or two of them fully. And I wanted to work with her. She invited me over to the house and she was so compassionate. Mm. And we, I worked one-on-one -on -one with her for an entire semester for a grade uh, at Harvard in her home. You guys went back and looked at your family history to do this book. What, what was the, if there's one thing that really surprised you most, because when you do that, you of course find things you didn't know. What, what was that thing? Well, for me, it was that Papa did most cooking and Deer didn't because he let her present the meals on the Sunday. So I actually thought she had cooked those Sunday meals and didn't realize that Papa had done that. In the writing of Soul Food Love, Mom and I actually put our hands on every single one of the cookbooks that I inherited from my grandmother. You know, they came in boxes when she passed away and my grandmother would press flowers into the pages of these books. She'd save menus that she'd written. She'd just have stuck it in with a recipe. She'd have a grocery list. She'd have little diagrams of how she'd be planning to rearrange the furniture. She was having a lot of people over. Or my favorite was there were all of these card catalog cards from whatever she'd be reading one of her cookbooks while she was working at a library and have stuck a card catalog card in there um, to hold her spot and then have left it. So as a grown woman myself, getting to know her as a woman instead of just knowing her as my grandmother, that was a pretty amazing learning experience for me, I'd say. Allison, Caroline, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I, I wish I was part of such an interesting family. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so thank much. Thank you. I'm going to sit at the welcome table, oh, Lordy. 
That was Alice Randall and Caroline Randall Williams, co-authors of Soul Food Love. Alice Randall spoke about the gospel hymn, The Welcome Table, being one of her favorites. It was also an anthem of the civil rights movement. I'm gonna sit at the welcome table one of these days. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, spaghetti with lemon pesto. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So this week we're talking about Italy and Amalfi. I actually hiked in Amalfi years ago. Uh, and one of the signature ingredients they grow there are these humongous lemons, which are great to make liqueur, uh, but also <laughs> pasta dishes. So what is a lemon doing in a pasta dish? Well, you know, the family that I learned this from, they've actually been farming lemons on, on the hills of Amalfi uh, for, I think, six generations now. And Salvatore Aceto, the farmer... Uh, he says they eat so many lemons and it's so important to their culture, to everything they do, that they don't actually have blood in their veins, they have lemon juice. And after watching him and his wife cook for an afternoon and seeing the way they use lemon in absolutely everything, I believe them. <laughs> but uh, Giovanna, his wife, was showing me this recipe for you know lemon pesto with pasta. And, and I have you know, a kind of an odd reaction to that because I think lemon can be very potent and it can overwhelm other flavors. But she was inspired by pesto genovese, the basil pesto that we all know so well. And the difference is she uses finely grated lemon zest and a lot of lemon zest instead of the basil. She replaces the traditional pine nuts with almonds and the garlic, she leaves it out entirely. Now, I've had pasta with lemon, actually in Boston many years ago. And my first reaction was, strange bedfellows. Uh, <laughs> but I've tried this recipe, and I really liked it. So what is it about this recipe you think that makes lemon and pasta go together so well? Well, there's a couple things at play here. And, and the first is the almonds are going to kind of tame the acidity right. of the lemon. You know, they're, they're taking it down. The other part is we're not really using the juice. We're just using the lemon zest. So you're not getting quite that sharpness that you might expect right. from it. And when you combine the zest with the starchy pasta water and the almonds, you know, you're actually getting kind of a gentle sweetness and a gentle brightness that plays really well with the pasta. So in other words, you have enough almonds to balance the, uh, the zestiness of the zest. Exactly. And olive oil, of course. Yes. And actually, one of the things we did, you know, so the Amalfi lemons tend to be sweeter and less harsh than the lemons that we get here in the U.S. And so we wanted to compensate for that because that is probably one of the reasons that you had a, a negative reaction to your lemon pasta so many years ago. And in order to compensate for that, we put just a little hint of sugar into our pesto just to kind of mellow out the rougher edges of the lemons that we get here. Now, do you cook the zest in the boiling water too, or is it just added in the pesto in a food processor? So for the pesto itself, it is not cooked. We just combine it and then toss it with the finished pasta. However, Giovanna had a neat trick for adding like an extra layer of lemon flavor to her pasta dishes. She does take big hunks of lemon zest and puts them in the water as she's simmering it when she's cooking the pasta. And it infuses it with a little bit extra layer of lemon for the finished dish. So we used it both ways. J.M., thank you very much. 
spaghetti with lemon pesto. It's the marriage of an odd couple, but it seems like they're getting <laughs> yes. along just fine. Thanks. Thank you. You can get this recipe for spaghetti with lemon pesto at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, Dan Pashman fixes a cocktail. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Carolyn Wolf. Here's my tip. Open a leaf of a large leaf vegetable, such as collard greens. Place on top of it a bunch of small leaf vegetables, such as parsley or cilantro. Roll up the large leaf, cut it in a chiffonade, and when you open it, you will have made the chiffonade and you will have chopped up the other vegetable. This is good for lazy cooks. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing all right, Chris. I am um, doing my best to stay warm. And um, I have moved from drinking hot beverages to stay warm outdoors to drinking alcoholic beverages to stay warm outdoors. This is malt cider, or do you have something more Pashman-like? Well, that's, I, I, I come to you hat in hand this week, Chris, because I need some help. I need guidance. I, I feel like I need more cold-weather drinks. I love an old-fashioned, which to me is a cold-weather drink. Right. A priest once made me a Gaelic flip. It's got whiskey, vermouth, allspice liqueur, simple syrup, and then an egg. Hmm which was fantastic, but I, I need something else. Okay, the, the first one is patterned after my great aunt, Caroline, and she used to come to our family gatherings, and she brought her own grapefruit juice in a large plastic takeout cup, and it turned out to be mostly gin with a float of grapefruit juice on top. <laughs> so, <laughs> so rye is my baseline alcohol, with a float of cider mm. <laughs> on top. I, I go back to the old-fashioned. I mean, it's called the old-fashioned because it was the first cocktail, I believe. But what you can do is there's so many other things you can put in it. You can put orgiat. Oh, right. That's like a, a, almond, an almond syrup. syrup. You can put a lot of flavored syrups in it and lots of bitters, of course, in it as well. And I mix half rye, half bourbon to, to make it not quite as sweet. But I, I, one word of warning in all these drinks is beware of sweet. Okay. You know, there's a lot of hot chocolate consumption happening in my house. My wife is big hot chocolate, kids hot chocolate in the winter, especially this winter because we're outside more, socializing outdoors more, even in the cold. Um, so there's often hot chocolate around. And I think to myself, I should do something with this. I, this should be a component of a cocktail. What should I put in the hot chocolate? to turn it into a drink? Well, first of all, don't use any dairy product with chocolate because if you want a really good hot chocolate, you make it with water, not dairy. Interesting. In Why? Well, because the dairy obscures the flavor of the chocolate. Mm. Um, it's, it's like milk chocolate versus right, dark right, chocolate. Right, right, Okay, that it's makes same sense. Thing. Secondly, Mexican hot chocolate obviously uses a little bit of chili heat in right. it. Right. So if I were going to do an adult hot chocolate, I'd have a little heat to that little chili flavor in that as well. And then, you know, there's a million liqueurs you can add to that. Uh, Fernet, you know, the bitter, right. oh. uh, some of the Italian ones. I would never ones. have thought about that, but I can see that being really good. But I, I would think about it as layers, right? You have heat, you have a little sweet, you have chocolate, and you have some baseline alcohol in there. Another one is, um, you know, in, in Austria, they have all these clear alcohols made from elderberry and other things. 
those are exceptionally good. Right. <laughs> As a flavoring in, in almost any – you can even put them in an old-fashioned if you just put a small amount. And those, uh, those alcohols are, are really good. That sounds fantastic. There's one my wife's been into lately, which is going to be too sweet for you, but she loves it. Um, it's equal parts hazelnut liqueur and raspberry liqueur, and then you take a few ounces of like cream and you shake it all up real good with ice, and it's like frothy. It's called nuts and berries. It's basically like liquid ice cream, but it is delicious. Do you have a half gallon bottle of creme de menthe in your <laughs> liquor cabinet too? I don't know. I I don't go for the I know. I, sweet, I figured that stuff. one would not yeah. be up your alley. The the only last thing I would say is the classic English punch. Okay. You know, so, some of those things they let sit, you know, around for a month to age. Mm. But those those were substantive and built for cold weather. So I, I would think a, a great English punch is something to look into okay. as well. I'll do that. This has been very helpful. I, my winter drinking game has already been elevated. Thank you, Chris. Dan Pashman, what to drink during the cold weather? Uh, rye with a float of cider <laughs> or an old-fashioned with some schnapps in it. Take care. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. You know, these days the term old-fashioned implies something that really needs an update. Well, the old-fashioned cocktail was simple enough. Spirits, bitters, water, and sugar. And in America, that evolved into whiskey, rye preferred over bourbon, with the addition of a lemon or maybe an orange peel. Well, then came the maraschino cherries, the slice of orange, and in a worst-case scenario, the addition of blood orange soda. So maybe, just maybe, old-fashioned is a pretty good thing, after all. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or you can order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production help by Debbie Paddock. Additional editing, Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.